Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and often in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the recent government decision to delist gray wolves under the Endangered Species Act, as well as the ways in which that decision was made and the implications for wolf populations. I was fortunate to be joined by an excellent group of recent bioscience authors for this one, and they are Carlos Carroll, independent ecologist based on the California-Oregon border in the Klamath Mountains, Adrian Trevis, who is a professor of environmental studies at the Nelson Institute at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Bridget von Holt, associate professor in ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton University, and Dan Rolfe, a professor of law at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. Let's go to the interview. Thank you all very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, so just to get us started, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the history of the gray wolf in the United States and, you know, the history of gray wolf recovery in the United States. Just a really quick overview, something to fill in a few blanks for, you know, those who may not have been paying as close attention to this issue as they perhaps should have over the years. So I'll leave that to whoever would like to jump in. Well, I... James, the gray wolf was once found throughout most of the United States. Uh, there was another species, the red wolf, found in the southeast. By the time uh, World War II or, or shortly after, uh, government eradication programs and, uh, and other um, sources of uh, persecution, killing of uh, wolves had driven them. So there was a remnant population found in northernmost Minnesota in the Boundary Waters. But other than that, they had been pretty much uh, were no longer found within the lower 48. Um, once they were protected under the Endangered Species Act, shortly afterwards, the first wolves became, uh, started coming into northwestern Montana from uh, adjacent Canada, and that population grew. And then in uh, the mid-90s, the Clinton administration uh, spearheaded a effort to bring wolves from western Canada and re release them into uh, the Yellowstone National Park and central Idaho, those populations grew rapidly uh, and became the source of the uh, Northern Rocky Mountains population. They also established uh, packs through natural dispersal in all of the uh, Pacific states, Washington, Oregon, and California. Recently, we've seen some wolves disperse into Utah and Colorado, and the uh, Western Great Lakes population has grown from that uh, source in the northern Minnesota to encompass a lot of the uh, Western Great Lakes. Adrian uh, knows much more about that. And then we have a, a separate subspecies found in the southwest and adjacent Mexico called the Mexican wolf that uh, we won't be talking about as much today because it's listed separately under the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, if I could just add to that, Carlos, in the upper Midwest and the states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, it was as Carlos said, a natural recolonization. Oh, I should have said this is Adrian speaking. And uh, natural recolonization means without direct human intervention, wolves spread eastward from Minnesota into the northern third of Wisconsin, eventually also reaching the central forest of Wisconsin, and then spread into the upper peninsula of Michigan. Wolves are found in all three states currently. Okay, so it sounds like this, you know, the species has been doing well, relatively speaking, obviously, to its, you know, the, the periods in which it was being actively persecuted. Um, and this is drawing from a number of different populations, extant and, you know, reintroduced. Um, 
what's been happening on the legal front? Um, you know, has this been purely the result of, you know, Endangered Species Act protection? You know, what are the dynamics that have been at play there over the same period? Uh, this is Dan Rolf. Um, wolves were protected early on under the Endangered Species Act um, throughout the United States. And then um, for their reintroduction into the Yellowstone ecosystem in central Idaho, they were uh, listed as a special uh, population, um, a so-called Section 10J experimental population, um, a special provision of the Endangered Species Act that allows for reintroduction um, of uh, listed species outside of the current range of a species. And so they had a slightly different legal status. Um, <clears throat> since uh, the reintroduction, the US Fish and Wildlife Service that administers the Endangered Species Act has been um, attempting to delist wolves, take remove them um, from the list of protected species um, through a variety of ways. Um, those have ended up in court um, numerous times, and courts generally have um, ruled as unlawful the Fish and Wildlife Service's efforts to, to delist wolves, which led to this most recent um, delisting decision. Um, one other notable um, legal development was that Congress itself, um, so not the, not the agency charged with administering the statute, but Congress itself declared that the Northern Rockies population of wolves should be removed from the list. And that remains the only um, delisting ever ordered by lawmakers. So that just kind of underlines um, the, the political involvement and, and political controversies surrounding protection of wolves. And a quick question, you know, what's the Fish and Wildlife Service's motivation for, you know, attempting to, to delist wolves? What's, is, there, is there something at play there um, in, in particular? I, I can take that and then hand over to uh, Adrian. Um, certainly, uh, wolves can be a source of mortality, especially for um, <coughs> ranchers who graze on public lands. The uh, era uh, uh, after the eradication of large predator species on public lands in the West, um, it became uh, part of the uh, eco economics of public lands grazing that uh, precautions didn't have to be taken uh, against these predators. So when you bring wolves, grizzly bears, or other species back into the mix there, it it's, can be an e economic hardship to those uh, users of public lands. Uh, so I think beyond the uh, economic impact though, there's a larger sort of symbolic uh, impact of restoring wolves or other large predators to both public lands and, and landscapes uh, in the West and elsewhere in that it symbolizes to, to some uh, segments of our society, a loss of power, or a rolling back of what they felt were advances in, in taming the landscape. And so uh, wolves have always been both in Europe and in the United States uh, as much a symbol as an actual 
economic uh, factor, uh, which resulted in, in political pushback to some of these uh, conservation efforts. I'll take that baton if that's okay. Carlos, I totally agree with all that. Um, and that's a nice historical uh, snapshot. I think um, in more recent years, it, well, it's hard to guess motivations of the agency, but in their writings and in some court briefings, we do get a sense of their reasoning in, and their, their final rule explains their reasoning in the, in the current case. Uh, and it looks like the Fish and Wildlife Service believes that the wolves had achieved some numerical criterion. In other words, the Fish and Wildlife Service believes that the wolf populations had reached a certain uh, safe number of wolves, although they're distributed in what's estimated between 15 to 20 percent of the range that they were originally listed under. Uh, which is doesn't seem consistent with the Endangered Species Act, but I'm not a lawyer. And we also, one last comment that uh, feeds into my research area is the Fish and Wildlife Service briefed a federal court in 2005 and 2006 that it believed by delisting the gray wolf, uh, it would actually hasten recovery of the wolf population by raising tolerance in the public for those wolves and that raised tolerance was believed it would uh, it would lead to less poaching less illegal killing of wolves and that by allowing states and tribes to manage wolves more locally uh, they could control wolf attacks on domestic animals such as livestock and just so happens the federal court rejected that argument in 2006 and the science doesn't support it my lab has been studying that question for the last nine years. Maybe Dan or Bridget want to add more? Yeah, I, I all of these points uh, sort of hit home with how uh, what I've experienced with the community outside of Yellowstone National Park, the community's feeling of either being involved or completely um, excluded from management of, in this case, it would have been the relocated and reintroduced gray wolf. Um, yeah, I, I also find it challenging to watch the changing landscape of how some of these decisions are made, what are the data points that are used, and um, sometimes the blinders on to, to try to achieve some goal that that may not actually support a species in the long term. So this is Dan. Um, I think what has happened with wolves and their delisting is a good illustration of what I see as a trend under the Endangered Species Act. And, and it leads to some pretty fundamental questions, both from a policy as well as a scientific standpoint under the statute. Um, because um, obviously the goal of the Endangered Species Act is to uh, bring about the recovery of species that are facing extinction and listed as threatened or endangered. Um, but species such as wolves really raise the question of, well, what does recovery really mean? And unfortunately, in my view, um, and I think the view of my co-authors, 
Um, over the years, we've seen the Fish and Wildlife Service increasingly um, take on the idea that recovery um, can uh, occur if there's only even one relatively small or modest sized population that the agency considers to be viable for some period of time um, and simply discounts other important factors like um, intraspecific genetic diversity, as we point out for wolves, geographic um, representation of the species, uh, those factors have tended to get to go by the wayside and that I think across the board, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service has moved toward essentially declaring victory and saying, you know, we have been successful under the Endangered Species Act in recovering those species. But when you really look at the way the agency defines recovery, we see from both um, a biological as well as a, as a policy um, standpoint, it, it's an increasingly narrow definition of what constitutes recovery. And I think that raises some pretty fundamental issues that, that we all need to think about. You know, what are we really trying to accomplish under the Endangered Species Act? Okay, and I want to and I want to jump into those uh, or very soon, but I, I wanted to cover one really quick question. Um, you know, a little bit of ignorance that I'd like to be cured of, if possible. Um, can we talk just a moment about you know what delisting uh, under the Endangered Species Act actually does? Those who may not be you know as familiar with the act uh, may have already seen that you know there's there's been hunting of wolves before the delisting um, already in some states and. Um, and then I'd really like to get into, you know, the way that they define a recovered population and perhaps the ways that uh, they could define a recovered population that might be, you know, more in accord with healthy ecosystems, et cetera. Well, when a species is listed, uh, federal protections uh, basically prevent uh, hunting or other uh, forms of take, uh, except in very limited circumstances. There, there are some provisions for removal of wolves that uh, uh, harm cattle or other uh, issues like that. But once uh, a species is removed from the federal list, then each state has the ability to um, manage it as it sees fit. And so you'll see a range of uh, strategies ranging from a state like uh, Washington state, which is uh, trying to balance uh, issues of um, wolf livestock conflict with the desire of many of its citizens to see wolves in a, in a large part of their public lands versus a state like Utah, where the, there's a law on the books specifically directing the state agencies to prevent establishment of, of any wolves within the state. So it really, uh, you end up with a, a quite a varied uh, spectrum of approaches to conservation of the species. Dan, did you want to add uh, to that? No, the only thing I was going to say, Carlos, is that, you know, kind of the unique history of wolves that we talked about at the beginning um, did allow for somewhat um, more tailored protections for wolves. So particularly um, the reintroduced populations of wolves in Yellowstone and central Idaho 
um, were considered to be threatened species uh, under the Endangered Species Act. And for threatened species, the Fish and Wildlife Service has um, a bit wider authority to allow for um, take, um, including lethal control of um, animals under certain conditions. And so we saw a rule that allowed um, for ranchers or um, other management officials to remove some wolves that were preying on livestock. So that added, even when wolves were listed, um, that added some management options uh, for, for that species. Yeah, if I might jump in on that, this is Adrian. Uh, James, some of your listeners may be aware that there was public hunting and trapping of wolves in Idaho, uh, Wyoming, and Montana after that 2011 congressional delisting using a budget rider that Dan alluded to. And then in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, there was a three-year period, 2012 to 2014, in which uh, various wolf hunting seasons were opened, uh, including Wisconsin having a hounding season. So the uh, endangered status for wolves nationwide car carved out the Idaho, Wyoming, Montana population as distinct. Okay, so thank you very much for indulging me on the, those questions. Um, let's talk a little bit about you know the the basis and the criteria under which uh, the wolf was recently uh, delisted, and um, you know some of the things that perhaps could have been done differently, or perhaps ways that you know uh, those criteria should be reconsidered or thought about in a different way. This is Carlos. I just uh, wanted to uh, address that and place it in a larger context, uh, even if. Uh, your listeners don't particularly uh, have an interest in gray wolves as a species. I think it's a fascinating example of one of the fundamental problems uh, under the Endangered Species Act. The 1973 uh, Endangered Species Act was the third version of that law, but it was the first to say that lawmakers didn't want to just protect species from total extinction. They wanted to protect all the distinct uh, significant portions of a species range. So that brings up the question of how can you divide, uh, say you have a species that's present over a huge geographic area as wolves were historically, uh, what are the, the pieces of that distribution that can be seen as significant and merit consideration as uh, building blocks that you need to uh, make sure that you uh, preserve or conserve a population in each of those areas. And I think one of the fascinating things about wolves and other uh, related species is how difficult that is because they tend to hybridize, travel long distances. Uh, Bridget has uh, termed their uh, genetic relationships a web of life. And uh, so it's very different than other species that perhaps are much more easy to define as um, separate subspecies or subunits. So I think that's one of the key ecological questions that our paper tries to grapple with, not just for wolves, but uh, more generally for how the Endangered Species Act should be implemented. Yeah, I was just um, going to say, I think that's a really uh, amazing idea that this web of life and, and our challenge to kind of reinvestigate what species are and 
uh, in the context of changing environments, changing climate, and really focusing on how um, adaptive variation can really be beneficial as we um, identify that many species actually don't have these impermeable um, boundaries that there are lots of genes that can be shared between closely related species that have a beneficial outcome and how uh, having that actually be a part of the conversation for managing um, species that aren't even endangered but especially for those that are threatened and endangered i think this really just takes the conversation to a new level and into the the, the new century of thinking about genomics and uh, this is Dan, let me add, just from a legal standpoint, that the Endangered Species Act um, does provide opportunities um, to protect species below the level of entire species. Um, but those provisions of the statute um, are among some of the most ambiguous as well as some of the most controversial and litigated over um, compared to anywhere else in the law. So the Endangered Species Act allows for the listing of so-called distinct population segments of a species. And so there's been a lot of um, litigation and question over what a distinct population segment actually means. Also, the Endangered Species Act um, defines endangered spe species to include species in danger of extinction over a significant portion of their range. So that has raised um, another difficult question in a related vein, which is, what is a significant portion of a species range? And the Fish and Wildlife Service has been trying to define that concept as a, as a legal matter um, for, for about a decade now and uh, is, has thus far been unsuccessful. A number of courts have um, ruled unlawful the Fish and Wildlife Service's efforts to define what constitutes significance. Um, in significant portion uh, of their range. And so one issue that we try to look at for wolves and, and more broadly is how these tools, the ability to protect distinct population segments, the ability to pr protect um, a species in a significant portion of its range under the law um, can go hand in hand with protecting um, the important genetic diversity within a species. So that's, that's what we hope people um, will get from our, our work. This is Adrian. I'd like to jump in on that. And I, I agree with my colleagues. And like, I'd like to circle back to something very important Carlos said. For your listeners who don't really care about wolves or aren't very interested in wolves, and, and here I'll be citing some work by Jeremy Bruscotter and Christina Slagel working out of Ohio State University. Uh, wolves are extremely popular nationwide, even in areas in which wolves occur and areas outside where wolves do not occur. Uh, but even for those who don't really care about wolves, the Endangered Species Act is extremely popular in the U.S. public. 
And it's one of, uh, as I understand it, an act of Congress, an environmental act of Congress that passed with uh, the most bipartisanship of any in its time period. Uh, and so that this action of delisting gray wolves nationwide is likely to be highly unpopular, especially when we look at the history of the delisting that's happened since 2003 for gray wolves. That history of delisting is clear that the states and many and some of the tribes that will have control after delisting the um, the regulations that they'll put in place are going to allow hundreds, if not thousands, of wolves to be killed legally and illegally following delisting. So you've got a popular law being um, short-circuited, if you will, and a popular species in the public, and the result is going to be hundreds, if not thousands, killed. Uh, the research that I've done in my the Carnivore Coexistence Lab, in my lab, has also focused on the environmental crime that follows the illegal killing we now know is almost certainly going to follow the liberalization of wolf killing at the state level. And and does that uh, you know illegal killing is that a result of smaller penalties because you're no longer killing an endangered species you're merely you know committing some department of game type citable offense or something along those lines? We don't know the cognitive mechanism that's going on with would-be poachers and actual poachers, but the type of poaching that increases, and I'm, I'm now citing research by Dr. Francisco Santiago Avila out of University of Wisconsin, the type of poaching that occurs is what we call cryptic poaching, in which evidence is concealed. So it suggests that the poachers feel emboldened to kill wolves and hide the evidence of that killing after delisting occurs. That's interesting. So I, I think we've given a good overview of, you know, kind of on what basis, you know, the these recent decisions were made. Um, but I, I think that leaves open the question of, you know, what basis would we have preferred the decision to have been made or not made rather? And what process and what, you know, considerations um, you think it would be appropriate for the service to make in the future, um, you know, as it, as it approaches other potential delisting decisions and those types of things. What's your position? What's the, what's the article's position on, uh, you know, delisting and what types of things should be taken under consideration? I'll, I'll take a stab at that. This is Carlos. Uh, if you look back uh, to the Obama administration uh, early years, they attempted the Fish and Wildlife Service to devise a range-wide recovery strategy. They um, drew uh, six different large regions within uh, areas that had to, to cover the uh, lower 48, any area that uh, was found to have suitable wolf habitat. And then they tried to develop a comprehensive strategy as to how a recovery effort would uh, occur in each of those areas. Uh, they abandoned that effort after uh, two years or so based on um, some pushback from Western states such as Utah. But that type of comprehensive recovery strategy is very similar to efforts that the service took with less controversial species like the bald eagle. Basically, you look at uh, where the species occurred historically, where there's still habitat for it and what kinds of conservation actions, what resources are needed to uh, reestablish uh, the species in those different areas. And uh, I think that uh, 
the Obama administration uh, was never bold enough to entirely uh, abandon the concept of uh, the necessity for that kind of broad strategy, although it uh, didn't um, complete it. But the Trump administration in its latest delisting rule really went to the extreme of saying, we don't really care as long as there's a single population that is currently secure and the largest population is in the Western Great Lakes. We contend that that's as far as our duty goes under recovery. So basically, if, if you were looking at an analogous strategy for uh, grizzly bears, they could say, well, we've recovered grizzly bears in Glacier National Park, so we're going to let them go extinct in Yellowstone. So it's a, it's a very different, it's sort of an extreme um, minimalist interpretation or museum piece interpretation of the Endangered Species Act. So uh, if the agency uh, has more uh, progressive leadership in the future, we uh, at least uh, I would hope that they might turn back to that more comprehensive look. Uh, and, the, and of course, uh, a number of those areas already have wolf populations that are recovering, like the Pacific Northwest. But And uh, just yesterday, Colorado voters appear to have passed by a very small margin a initiative to direct the state to begin uh, reintroduction of wolves to Colorado. So we almost all of the uh, regions except for the Northeast have ongoing recovery efforts, but often federal assistance uh, while the species is still listed is necessary to get states to um, be able to take that kind of effort on. It's much more difficult for them to do it on their own. So uh, that at least is my take on where, how we need to rethink recovery and, and uh, move away from this kind of museum piece approach towards a more comprehensive approach. This is Dan. I was, I would just add to what Carlos said that you know, I think our paper tries to outline both the biological <clears throat> importance of a broader approach to recovery in protecting the genetic diversity within a species that um, that the species that that all species um, I think will increasingly need in um, a, a, in a very dynamic future as we all face with climate change, you know, protecting that genetic diversity um, is extremely important. And that diversity is in part a function of, of the geographic um, distribution of a species. And I think our paper also shows that the law um, properly interpreted with what we see as the proper interpretation of the statute does give um, the Fish and Wildlife Service tools um, to protect those populations, either as distinct population segments or as um, segments of the species listed in a significant portion of their range. And so um, we believe that the, the legal tools are there that allow the agency um, to protect species uh, for a, a broader future, even facing threats of climate change and other broad threats. I, I guess I can say a few things. Um, I've always been hopefully helpful on the genetic end of some of the delisting requirements or, um, you know, criteria. And 
I think as more genomic data is collected and we have new technologies and, and can really explore genomes and evolutionary history in new ways, I, I found this very challenging as to how we actually can interpret this in light of species management. In terms of the different wolf populations and their evolutionary history and demography, there, it, it's very clear to me that there's a lot of unique parts and distinctive um, features of each wolf population. Even we can, we can really describe incredible differences and unique features within populations even, just from what we know about the biology of wolf behavior and population growth. So I think the huge challenge that, um, me not being a policymaker, the huge challenge that I, I wanna face and wanna help push forward is how do we interpret and, and how do we categorize what type of genetic variation is is best used at what level of um, these policy discussions. General genetic variation is really helpful and informative in a, in a sort of high level theory, but do we also, how do we identify and how do we categorize adaptive genetic variation? What level of fitness or, or links to phenotypes and behaviors? Like where, where are those limits and boundaries and, and when do we find them useful? I don't know that answer, but I do think that we're really coming up to these types of conversations to have. So in addressing questions like that, speaking specifically about wolves, you know, what kind of variations, you know, do we see in phenotype or behavior, um, you know, as a result of the genetic differences between different populations or even among populations? You know, what, how does that manifest itself, um, you know, in real sort of on the ground terms? So I have one, um, oh, there, there's lots of complexities that I don't really um, know if we need to go into, but there's one story that I actually really like from um, Yellowstone. Uh, historically, most of the wolves that lived in Yellowstone very early on were um, more successful and specialized on elk predation. That's what their main food source was and only a handful of individual wolves um, essentially were successful at um, uh, preying upon bison, which is a much larger, much more challenging species. And what was really actually so cool to see was that there was this transmission of this ability to, as a pack, to sort of shift and include bison in your diet if you had that knowledge transmission. So for me, that could very easily be a, from an onlooker's perspective, a behavioral difference that happens within a population that actually requires dispersal and interaction of different wolf packs, different wolf populations. And if we think at a larger picture, the impact on what species are going to be impacted by having an endangered carnivore in the area, a lot of these conversations can stop at that level if that's what's important. And alternatively, there are many other features we can discuss, the body size, body shape, um, behavior in terms of, of boldness or generalists, or, you know, there's a lot of complexity. So I, I think that even within a very small population, there's such incredible variation within canines 
that um, for me, these conversations are very easy to delineate all of the interesting features that are very important in thinking about future persistence of populations, the ability to adapt under what we can only anticipate will be rapid changes, and without knowing a priori what are the genes that we need to protect which will enable species persistence. We don't know those answers, but we're, we're trying to understand where adaptive variation is, but I mean, I struggle with this a lot in terms of are we now talking about preserving endangered genes and endangered var genetic variants? Um, and I do think we have to have those types of conversations. But again, not being a policymaker, I don't even envy the person who has to try to work this into any policy documents. I don't, I just don't know how that conversation will happen, but I'm excited to, to see that we're, the community is pushing for those types of topics. I agree, Bridget, totally. I, and you ask a bunch of scientists the question that James asked us about how these decisions should be made in the future under different circumstances. You ask a bunch of scientists that question and they will sort of go back to the science, but ultimately the decision by the Fish and Wildlife Service or by the Secretaries of Interior and Commerce actually is it's a value-based decision. Um, th this is Adrian, by the way, sorry. Uh, and, and the values were articulated, as far as I can see, by Congress in the Endangered Species Act and the text of the act itself, when the significant portion of range clause was added, as Dan has explained. Uh, and I feel like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service since 2003 has been using another value judgment one that the Endangered Species Act doesn't speak to, something about the numbers of individual wolves on the landscape. And I think Congress was visionary in 1973 when it didn't hang its hat about different endangered species on some numerical recovery, but instead on uh, a criterion about geographic recovery. I think that was visionary. And we, we, you know, we work from values when we make decisions to act or not to act. The science doesn't make those decisions for us. It can inform what is a significant portion of range. Uh, so in the future, I would love it if our policymakers were very clear, clear about their value judgments, not making them implicit, but making them explicit and using the science in the way that was that's most appropriate. Just as a quick example, Carlos and I, were two of the five official scientific peer reviewers for this proposed rule back in 2019 before it became a final rule. And of the five reviewers, the, the way I read our reviews is we all found shortcomings in science. So it feels a little bit like the Fish and Wildlife Service made an implicit value judgment and uh, trying to make the science fit that decision after the fact. I don't know, Dan, what do you think, or Carla? Yeah, participating in those processes uh, often leaves you wondering whether there is anyone uh, listening at the agencies uh, about the scientific peer reviews. Uh, actually looking over the final review, it seemed like rather than trying to respond to the peer reviews, they actually went further towards their extreme uh, minimalist in, interpretation of the act. So that may be a, a particular aspect of the current administration uh, that will hopefully change uh, in the future. But I, I think the peer review process for agency decision making is um, 
broken in, in fundamentally in some respects. Dan, do you? Well, this is Dan. I think more broadly, um, the Endangered Species Act, like a lot of environmental statutes, um, provides quite a lot of discretion um, to the agencies that implement those statutes. Um, now that discretion is limited to some degree. So one of the issues that we discuss quite a bit is, you know, what, what constitutes a significant portion of the species range. And that, that term has to have some meaning. And in fact, as I indicated earlier, courts have actually invalidated previous agency efforts to narrowly define what significance is. Um, so there are certainly some limits on the agency's discretion, but ultimately I think agents, agencies implementing um, these broad statutes, um, unless Congress is very explicit, you know, Adrian wants a little bit more um, explicit guidance from Congress, unless, unless Congress is very explicit, agencies are going to have quite a bit of discretion. And I think over the past uh, few years, certainly, um, I don't know if any of us would be very excited uh, for recent Congresses to be explicit <laughs> about protections for threatened endangered species because I doubt they would be um, very great in terms of protection. Um, so it's always challenging to, um, for the agencies to decide uh, precisely how much protection a species should get or exactly how secure a species has to be um, to be termed recovered or how extensive geographically a population has to extend to be considered recovered. And, you know, that, that always, I think, is going to reflect quite a bit on policy choices that are made within an agency and that reflects um, the policy choices in an executive branch more broadly. And as Carlos, I think, has noted quite a bit, the Trump administration, for example, um, has not been willing um, to be expansive in its protections for threatened endangered species at all. And so I think if the American public wants to see more protection for threatened endangered species, wants to see wider protection for charismatic species like wolves, um, you know, the public needs to make that known a little bit more um, and communicate to policymakers that those are um, priorities among the public because, you know, the, the discretion of the agencies, the agencies will exercise their discretion to some degree based on their perception uh, of what the American people really want. Okay, if nobody else is going to is going to jump in on that one, I, I think that's a, an important and particularly relevant note today. We're recording the day after the election, uh, by the way, for our listeners. Um, uh, James, I just wanted to um, close on a note that these types of questions are not unique to the US. Uh, there a lot of other uh, nations, for example, the European Union is grappling with this. Uh, Adrian has done some work with colleagues uh, looking at their equivalent to uh, some of these conservation laws and how they can define uh, what to conserve below the species level. And then more broadly, the new um, 
targets coming out of the uh, Convention on Biological Diversity next year look at three levels of conservation, ecosystem, species, and genetic diversity within species. So as ecologists, we know that biodiversity has many scales. And I think uh, that question is going to uh, come up whenever we try to uh, turn that into policy. No, and I agree. I think that's an excellent note on which to leave it. So um, thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. It's good to see you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.